Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my great delight to welcome you here today. Now, on this program, as you may know, we have uh, poets choose a poem from the New Yorker archive, and they read it, and we have a conversation about it. And then, of course, if we're lucky, they'll read one of their own poems for us. My guest today is James Richardson, the great poet whose poems have been appearing in the magazine since 2007. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Now, you chose a poem by W.S. Merwin. Uh, It was published in the magazine in 2008. It's called A Single Autumn. Was that a poem you remember reading in the magazine as it came to your door with your subscription, which I'm sure you have? I do have a subscription, and I... I think I read this poem within a couple of days of it landing in the house and was immediately struck by it. When I went back through the archive, I I found lots of poems that I loved, but I kind of knew I was going to pick this one. Now, Merwin is a poet with whom you've had a relationship, I suppose, for years. You've had a particular regard for him. You teach at Princeton University, of course, and Merwin is a former student there, though not one of yours. What is He's it? young enough. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about uh, the poems of W.S. Merwin that uh, you find so winning? Ah, oh, winning. Uh, it must be some kind of similarity in temperament, a sense of only half being there, a sense of knowing things as you lose them and as they vanish. And I just, I'm interested in his attempt over and over to write an essential poem. Sometimes it's an almost anonymous poem. It's like a poem that anybody could have written except only he could have. In a profound sense, it's almost certain that when W.S. Merwin sits down to write a poem, the last person he wants to have write that poem is W.S. Merwin. In other words, he wants to do something quite unlike anything he's done before, perhaps at some level. I'm sure that's true. And this poem may be partly about that, about wanting to be completely uncaused, to feel like Adam and Eve at the end of Paradise Lost, that everything behind them is lost and they could just go on in anything. So let's hear this poem by W.S. Merwin, A Single Autumn, read here by James Richardson. James Richardson, was there anything in it uh, as you read it that first time that uh, caught your eye that we might benefit from hearing uh, a little gloss on, for example, as it flies by our ear? 
Well, I guess the thing that would catch anyone is the ending. And then once you've heard the ending, to go back to the rest of the poem and see that however specific and localized and social and autobiographical it felt, all that was somehow part of what's being dismissed at the at the end. It lies on a funny border between being something and and vanishing, being being everything and and nothing. So let's hear it. A single autumn read by James Richardson. A single autumn. The year my parents died, one that summer, one that fall, three months and three days apart. I moved into the house where they had lived their last years. It had never been theirs and was still theirs in that way, for a while. Echoes in every room, without a sound, all the things that we had never been able to say, I could not remember. Doll collection in a china cabinet, plates stacked on shelves, lace on drop-leaf tables, a dried branch of bittersweet before a hall mirror, were all planning to wait, the glass doors of the house remained closed. The days had turned cold, and out in the tall hickories, the blaze of autumn had begun on its own. I could do anything. That was a single autumn by W.S. Merwin, read there by James Richardson. Uh, it was published in The New Yorker on March third, two 2008. Some extraordinary moments in there, really the echoes in every room, all the things that we had never been able to say. Yeah, which is, of course, the thing you think of when people are gone, especially if they're your parents and especially if your relationship with them has been somewhat troubled. And then the, I could not remember, which isn't really clear if it refers to all the things he hadn't been able to say or maybe to the bunch of details that follows Well, indeed, yeah. that's yeah. right. It seems to go in two directions. Um, it's as if he's prompted to give this litany of items. A litany which is very specific, but in becoming examples of a specific, it becomes a generalization about what he's going to leave behind here, what's forgotten, what isn't his, what possibly wasn't even theirs. The positioning of this last line, as you say, it draws uh, quite a bit of attention to itself, and particularly as we go back into the poem again, as we tend to do if the poem is lucky and we <laughs> and we do indeed return into its territory. I could do anything. What I'm very interested in about this poem is the extent to which it flirts with that tradition. Mm -hmm. It nods in that direction and still manages to do its own thing. Mm -hmm. Well... I suppose someone could read this poem and say, what does the ending have to do with the poem? That this ending could have come after any group of details. And I suppose in a way that's true. But this is a poem with unspoken obligations in it, you know, sense of duty, whether it came out of himself or out of the weight of the past or his parents specifically or just heredity because we're made to feel obligated because we're communal creatures. But... It gets down to I could do anything, and the thing that the poem allows us to believe has triggered it is the line, the blaze of autumn had begun on its own, as if a few minutes ago he might have thought he had responsibility for starting the blaze of autumn, but no, the world's going to just happen. It doesn't, 
need us, and suddenly he's free. It's a poem that is genuinely profound and genuinely moving, I think. I mean, we hear that said at many as a poem. I think there are probably fewer of them of which is absolutely true. But this is moving. I think it's very moving. And as I approach the age of Merwin, I begin to think that's more and more important, that the poem move. One cares less about the tricks and more about not wisdom, buddy, but finding something essential enough that that you can respond to it with uh, emotionally. Well, do you have a philosophical view then in terms of the aesthetics of the poem? Where where does the, the poem reside? I ask it on this occasion because it's thrown into relief, particular relief on this occasion. I think for him in this part of his career and in, with this kind of a poem, the poem is starting with the experience and somehow getting to the center of it and, and getting to something that everyone will know somehow, whether it's happened to them or not, and can respond to. And he doesn't push us around with details and in interpretations so that the individual response is going to vary to it a lot. But the important thing is that there's some kind of emotional shape in there that, that we have to be able to get, uh, which I think it does very well. So, if we may, James Richardson, uh, hear your own poem uh, today, and it was published on June 9th, 2014, in The New Yorker, a poem called Essay on Wood. And before you read it for us, uh, I'd say perhaps inappropriate to ask you to do this, but is there anything apart from what's there on the page that you would like to say to us about it? When you look at the poem and look at what's in it, it's the kind of poem that I could have written any day of my life at a wooden desk with wooden pages in front of me with a pencil looking out the window at trees, which is what I look out at. Even a little water out there, but it's a tiny stream. There are no rowboats. Those are That's a kind of childhood memory of dawn getting up for fishing. And I suppose not everyone knows that there are, in fact, seven elements uh, water, air, light, stone, glass, wood, and wine. Really? Does, yes, it, does wine count as an element? <laughs> In my system. <laughs> I wish I'd been told that earlier on. And mind you, if you've got a wine glass, you've got, the, you've got two. Two. You, right. You're winning. So listen, I'm fascinated by the shift in meaning of the word essay, where it does seem, for the most part these days, to refer to a point being made. Whereas probably in its strictest sense, essay to try a trial piece, it's actually a process of discovery, what the point might be. And I was wondering partly if that might have been what was going on in your mind. Yeah, I am I'm feel much more in tune with essay as try and trial. And in these, I I haven't known where they were going to end up. But the sense that they were going to get someplace maybe helped me jump and and run a little bit. And when I got to an end, if I liked it, that was the end. And if not, I backed up and did it again. <laughs> Presumably something along the lines of that hunch, the mm. hunch that actually if you set off down this little path or this tiny little cut in the forest, it might open out into a clear. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper. 
with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. The Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. A hunch is as much as you have, I suppose, really, as you, as you go into most poems. Mostly it's a hunch. It's actually harder if you know what the last line is because then you have to find a way to discover something you already know by accident, which is a much more complicated and time-consuming process than just running along and accidentally finding something because the temptation is to will your way to the end you already know and, and you keep coming up with something that's stiff and un unconvincing. Good. Well, let's hear James Richardson reading his poem, Essay on Wood. At dawn... When rowboats drum on the dock and every door in the breathing house bumps softly as if someone were leaving quietly, I wonder if something in us is made of wood. Maybe not quite the heart knocking softly or maybe not made of it, but made for its call. Of all the elements, it is happiest in our houses. It will sit with us, eat with us, lie down, and hold our books, themselves a rustling woods, bearing our floors and roofs without weariness. For unlike us, it does not resent its faithfulness or question why, for what, how long. Its branchings have slowed the invisible feelings of light into vortices smooth for our hands, so that every fine-grained handle and page and beam is a woodward, a standing wave, years that never pass, vastness never empty, speed so great it cannot be told from peace. That's not usually how I read it. The, the problem here, and we've actually been talking about the whole, the whole time, is that uh, every poem infinitely possible become, or every person infinitely possible becomes one particular person doing one particular thing. You sit down hoping to write any poem and it's going to come out uh, one. You sit down to read a poem already written and it comes out one way. And the one, <laughs> the one way is never all it could be and always a little, eh, not necessarily disappointing, but sometimes less satisfying <laughs> than others. Well, do, do you feel that the poem instructs you in how it, it wants to be read? I, th I think it should and I think 
think as a poet, that's what I spend more time on than anything else is the lineation and the rhythm and the spacing and the syntax that to me decides exactly how it should be read. But I don't know if the last 10 or 15% of things that I work on in a poem are audible to anyone else. And I don't know if the signals that I think are there are subjective or objective. And sometimes I can't follow them myself. <laughs> one of the things I really love about this poem is, is the fact that one comes out of it realizing that one never will quite look at a piece of wood <laughs> in just the same way again. And what's interesting about that is that the, the method of the poem, the mode of the poem, is so quiet uh, that it is not striving for or straining for effect. And yet its effect is, is quite considerable. I mean, those images of the wood sitting with us, it will sit with us, eat with us, lie down and hold our books themselves, are rustling woods. I mean, at some level one would have expected to have seen that somewhere along the way in the in the endless groves of poetry in English. And yet one has not seen that. And it's uh, there's a revelatory aspect to it. Well, thank you. I I think of it as part of what I responded to when I first m read Merwin, possibly in The New Yorker, by the way, in the 60s. His need to live in a world where the simplest things had stories, where the stones in the garden were growing things for the for themselves. And that's one of the impulses of poetry is to kind of, you know, enliven the universe to make it possible to for us to live in it. So that's often where my poems try to go. And, and as far as wood, I, I, have thought, I have a poem about the erotics of metal called Metallurgy for Dummies. And this is, was kind of the opposite from it, you know. Metal's cool. Wood is like friendly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us today, James Richardson. You're very welcome. It's been fun. Essay on Wood by James Richardson, as well as W.S. Merwin's poem, A Single Autumn, can be found on The New Yorker's website. James Richardson's latest book of poems is By the Numbers, and W.S. Merwin's most recent collection is The Moon Before Morning. And I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, goodbye. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on NewYorker.com and in the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was recorded and mixed by Jill Duboff for NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. 
Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.